welcome back to The Craft, where we explore what we're learning about the creative process. I'm Colby, and I'm a music producer and a product manager. And I'm Carter, a writer and PhD student at the University of Kentucky. And today, uh, we are airing a recent interview that we did with artist Susan Hensel. Susan is a multimedia artist. She has over 50 years of experience, and she's living in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Her work has been featured in over 200 exhibitions. She's done more than 30 of them solo, 20 of them gathering awards. And her work's been featured in places such as the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Getty Research Institute, major holdings at Minnesota Center for Book Arts, the University of Washington, and the list goes on. Her work is really innovative. She's using commercial embroidery processes, so think of the machines that put a logo on a t-shirt, and sculptural concerns to create rich, colorful 3D pieces of fine art. And it's really interesting and really innovative. And so it was a very interesting conversation just to hear how did she even get into that space from sculpting and what kind of wayfinding did she do in her career? There's a lot of insights and gems that she dropped in this episode that I think people are going to enjoy. Yeah, I mean, the conversation with Susan doesn't even scratch the surface of kind of the creative wisdom that she has. But we get to talk about some really interesting things. Susan has some uh, insightful ideas about medium. You know, she's such an innovative artist and across mediums and how different textures and colors and fabrics can influence and mediate the audience. So, She shares some really neat kind of specific examples of that in her work, and she just really brings a creative energy to the conversation. Uh, She talks about, you know, how she's worked through iterations, and, you know, not everything has to be the quote-unquote masterpiece, but returning to ideas that have, you know, kind of had some lasting value and using that to kind of continue to grow and iterate. And so we have a great conversation about the creative process in general. Yeah, it was also interesting to hear how she thinks through full, you know, experiences. She's done a lot of work in spaces and creating full-on experiences for people in this mixed media and multimedia formats. And so it's just so interesting because she's so in tune with environment and place and reactions and her perspective versus other people's perspective and multiple dimensions in her art. And so... Uh, Whether you work in fine arts or not, I think that there's some gems that you can definitely take from this episode. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with Susan Hensel. Well, Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So I'm going to dive right into things. The first thing is we really loosely structure these interviews around the four creative principles that we talk about. So create and revise, share and sustain. So I want to start in this create and revise category of questions and topics and just ask you kind of, you know, for you, how do you start new projects? Where do those ideas come from? And then how do you iterate and refine as you take those first steps in a project? Just want to get right into your process. It's it's very intuitive at this stage. I've been highly productive artist for the better part of 50 years. When I started out, I definitely did heavy duty sketches measurements and notes and all of that and what happens now is that yeah there are a few sketches that may get me started on the digital part of this but what really happens is that there's a lot of noticing going on when you work digitally in the way that I work the 
computer is just simply a tool and I'm doing digital embroidery, which means I'm digitizing stitches, which is I'm drawing with stitches in the computer. And I'm making projections about how the colors and the fabrics are going to work together. And then, and I have some idea about what the shapes and forms are going to be. I don't go in totally blind, but I stitch them out and then I have to manipulate them. And sometimes while they're stitching out, I'll watch it and I'll stop it because the point it's at right now is better than the point I was going to. So I'll take it out of the machine. Sometimes I complete the stitching and I go, it needs more. And I'll go back to the computer and I'll digitize an overlay for an area that needs more. And sometimes I've chosen the wrong thread color because I've got 10 to 15 possibilities on the machine and it's really easy to choose spool two instead of spool three. And it's, you know, user error, right? <laughs> you thought you were going to be stitching blue, uh, blue and all of a sudden there's this raucous red there and you have a, a choice to make at that point. Do you let the machine continue, which takes a remarkable amount of time to stitch these things out and just see what happens, or do you stop it, take it out, and start over? And those are decisions that are made on a case-by-case -case basis. Sometimes I wind up loving the mistakes way more. But a lot of the work happens after these things come out of machines. I mean, they are designed to bend and to fold. They're designed to do color interactions based on classic, you know, color studies, but also on a little bit of physics. Not that I'm a physicist, I'm not at all, but I, I more or less understand a little bit about how color is determined by the angle of the, how the light hits and reflects. And the thread is triangular cross-sections. You already have some odd reflections. And if you fold the fabric or just curve it if it's not a folded piece, you get all different kinds of reflections. And then if a person walks by, they get even more reflections rather like a lenticular billboard or something. So I'd make projections about that, but I don't really know what it's going to look like until I start fooling with it. A lot of the current work is made in response initially to some antique pipe molds that I've collected. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, they are so cool. I can, I can hardly stand it. I really like the looks of things that have had a life before. I, there's, there's just something about the, the touch of the hand and the, the wear and tear. And I didn't even know what the first pipe mold was. I mean, you could tell it was probably a U-joint from something. And I still don't entirely know how they were used. I think they were sand molds, but I'm not sure. Um, but I, I do develop 
shapes and forms to fit within. And I do drawings for that to make sure I get kind of the right size and things. And ultimately, all of these things began suggesting issues, kind of twin issues of climate change and wayfinding in a way. The subject matter comes to me from working with the materials. Mm-hmm. And the subject matter for since the beginning of the pandemic really has been about finding one's way in whatever this new world is, which includes politics, pandemic, isolation, and all of those things within the changing environmental place we live. The planet's going to survive us. Are we going to survive what we do to the planet? And, and so they're inquisitive pieces without being didactic. Does that make a little bit of sense to you? Yes. Yeah. And one piece suggests another, because as I'm working on these, iterations are natural. So how does it feel to make something, though, that, you know, like you said, it's a 3D element to it, and there's an inter- interactive element, like how the audience sees this art is going to actually be maybe different than how you see it when you're first creating it. You're creating a flat piece, and then it's becoming 3D. So how does that, uh, there's a bit of being out of control maybe or not being able to yeah, yeah. see all of that in advance. How does that feel when you're creating it? You know what? I am very okay with that. All of us artists, you know, we have ideas behind what we do, right? And we hope on that some of it gets through. And when none of it gets through, then you know you kind of missed the boat. It might still be a nice piece, but you didn't communicate even within the ballpark of what you were planning. And so I don't see that necessarily as a failure, but it's just a a learning experience. Probably seven or eight years ago now, I did an interactive real-time video environment. I Well, it started with glasses. I'd gotten my first kind of wild pair of glasses, and I wasn't sure if I liked them. So I decided to do a self-portrait every day of them for a while, for a month, I thought. Mm-hmm. Well, it extended to 600 self-portraits, I think, just on oh. a six-by-six. Six. Just simple things, not highly developed. Some had colors, some didn't. Some were just scribbles. It didn't matter. And I made a giant curved screen that these were turned into. It was probably 25 feet long by eight feet high, I would say. And to me, all of those eyes staring out were very um, invasive and kind of creepy. So I sent out a survey uh, about what does it mean like when you're in a store and, and, and they come up to you, can I help you? And you say, oh, no, thank you. I'm just looking. And I asked a series of like four questions mm-hmm. from which I developed a script. And I, I got a couple of friends who were actors to read parts. And it was kind of creepy, right? You know, ooh, you know, big brother's watching you. Just leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. You know, all, all kinds of things. But when people came to the show, they were filmed when they came in the door. And then their image was projected 
on this screen and then 30 seconds later projected again and they didn't find it creepy at all they found it playful and they started jumping up and down and and trying to get their heads up at the top of the screen and then they would spend time going finding which face they liked the best so it made me feel creepy but i sure missed the boat on how it made most people feel and and i thought well you know what that's fine that is utterly fine now if i had a tremendous amount of political content in it i would have been more upset but it was just kind of like golly this is all those eyes are so creepy <laughs> so you have to decide you know if people miss the boat is it is it a problem or are they just simply having the experience that they are having and right. if they are having an experience you've kind of succeeded if they leave totally mm -hmm. indifferent or if they walk in and go eh and walk out the door immediately, yeah, boy, have you missed the boat. But if they're having an experience from it, then you've made a change there. That's so good. Yeah, there are dual or triple or multiple experiences people can have with my work. My latest opening, I don't know if anybody got to, except through the titles, to the environmental parts. And I didn't really care about that, truthfully. That's what it means to me. But one of the underlying goals I have with this current work is that people pause, I guess. You know, we're all, all in such a hurry. We're, there's so much pressure on us to produce, produce, produce. And, and I do produce a lot, but I do it from joy. <laughs> it's just what mm. I do. But also there's this tendency in our culture to be proud of how busy we are and when you're too busy you really can't be productive you have to build in times of rest and sometimes it could only be 30 seconds it doesn't matter it's better to have five or six hours here and there i mean you come back refreshed but what i want to happen is that they'll get stopped in their tracks and go what the hell was that and how did you do it and at the last opening, I had people riveted. They were paused. Now, they came to pause. Of course they did. But it was different. And my contention is that, that let's say you bought one of these pieces and put it in your office, and you're under all this pressure to produce, 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 produce. There are times you just got to shut everything off and go, oh, my God. And you look at the piece, you let it wash over you, and then you can return to what you are doing refreshed. Because everybody has 30 seconds or a minute in their day, no matter what pressure you're under. And so that's the underlying goal with it all. And so that's where the beauty comes in, and that is the radical nature of beauty. It's not just about pretty stuff. Mm -hmm. It's about affecting change, and that change mm -hmm. might be... 30 seconds and a deep breath. There's so many good things here. So many places that we could take this. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been doing this a long time, but I also, I'm very embodied. I notice my body. It's got a crappy skeleton. I notice my body. And I'm aware of my body in the environment and in how I structure the environment. Mm -hmm. There was one piece I made where I 
I determined it needed to be hung at about 10 feet high so that when people would look at it, they had to look up, which opens your throat, which automatically makes you take a deep breath, which automatically then helps you relax. And, and you know, when people would look, they didn't know that I had manipulated this environment mm-hmm. for them. They just wondered, why the hell did she put it up that high? But then maybe they would notice, wow, that was a good night. Really glad I went there. So some of it's subterfuge. I love that. That intention on the medium's transformation of the subject. And, you know, it, yeah. one of the things we really wanted to talk about with you was kind of the shift from physical embroidery to the digital world. How did that happen? Where did your expression change? I would just love to hear you talk about that. Well, it's, there is kind of a funny story to it. I am definitely, as you noted in the questions you sent me, trained as a sculptor. And that means I'm all about tools and materials. I mean, I just am. And anybody who identifies as a sculptor is. They rarely identify with a specific media in sculpture. They identify with the process and what it takes to do the process. And I was busily working in installation, large scale, all different media, depending on what I was doing. But I attended the Minnesota State Fair. And to become a Minnesotan, that's kind of one of those key events because it's a huge state fair and I am not native here. I'm used to state fairs where there are a few cows, you know, a few quilts, you know, and some, some, you know, food, you know, and you could do it in a day. The Minnesota State Fair is the size of a small city. It has a permanent fairgrounds within the city of Minneapolis. And It's got, you know, the huge amphitheaters. It's got small performance spaces all over the grounds. And yes, tractors and animals and and cars and and parades and things like that. And it also has probably 100,000 people a day who come. Wow. It's just overwhelming. And one year that I went, I decided I would go to a building I had never been to before that they call the demonstration building. And this is where the people who sell Ginzu knives show their wares, vacuum food storage systems, you know, small businesses. And I and it, it was funny. It was fun, you know, and really kind of odd. It made me think of info commercials on TV. But I rounded a corner and here was just, you know, an acre of sewing machines that some of which were stitching on their own making designs and the one i saw was making a rather large design of donald duck and nobody was manning the machine and i wasn't impressed that it was hands-free and i certainly wasn't impressed it was donald duck (laughs) what got me was the blue of Donald Duck's midi shirt. I had never seen such a rich, dynamic blue in my life. I was absolutely mesmerized and fixed in place staring at this. 
And it was what I call the ultra ultramarine blue. It was truly that kind of blue. And at that moment, I knew, number one, I was in big trouble. I was going to have to have one of these machines. And I knew I could do something with that blue. And it wasn't going to be on a shirt. Mm. And it wasn't going to be on a cap. Because these machines are mostly used in fashion. They're mostly used for monograms and for logos. Larger machines certainly have been used to do bolts of, of yardage. So it's definitely firmly in the fashion world at the low end as well as the high end. But as a sculptor, I knew there was something more. So I went home. I started applying for grants. I didn't get a grant for my first machine. So I got a three years, same as cash, no interest, and learned everything I could about this machine and about digitizing. And I did, which was really hard, because they all tell you they will train you. Now, all they train you to do is how to put an existing design on the, on the left pocket of a shirt. They don't tell you how to make the design. So it was a hard climb, and I had a grant to fulfill. And I barely fulfilled the grant. What I did was I developed a set, an installation with a set of uniforms that would be the uniforms that a woman might, because it sure didn't look like anybody's uniforms, wear to work at various stages of a working career. And once again, I did a survey instrument that was sent out all over the United States about what your work uniform meant to you and how do you feel when you wear it? How are you treated when you wear it? And, and it had layers to it. There was a jacket, which was kind of the public face, right? And I remember wearing my Arby's uniform when I worked at Arby's and roast beef, right? It was this greasy yellow thing. It was awful, but you know, you knew that I worked for Arby's, right? You, you know, this, I was the person you talked to when you wanted that beef, and and then underneath was were the things that were a little bit more personal. So you got to express your individuality by how you wore your hair or the shirt that was sticking out, you know, all that stuff. And then under that was the truly personal. What people told me was astonishing. And I had it, I digitized the text and I put it all over these parts of the uniform. Hmm. So on the jacket, it was more the, it was a little bit more public, but they would say things to me like, I'm the smartest person in the room who's never listened to. I, and there, or they would say to me things like, I had a potter say, when I, when I have on my work apron, I'm smart and I'm with it. And, you know, I'm, I know what I'm doing. But when I don't have that on and I'm at an opening for my work, I feel naked and exposed. And I had other women tell me things like, what they don't know is I have on fancy underwear under here because it makes me feel good. And then on the outside, it says things like, you know, I'm the smartest person who's never listened to. And those were usually from university professors. <laughs> so it was just fascinating. And then the opening, um, I was part of the display wearing the 50 and up uniform. And, and I gave my artist talk from there. And the other parts of the display were hanging there. And it was a jacket, a dress, a petticoat, and leggings. 
So, and I did it for 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Because most of us work more or less a 40-year career. Not always, rarely in the same field, but, you know, about a 40-year career. But by the end of it, I understood how the machine worked and how digitizing worked. And I, and I immediately got new software and I had to get a PC because the Mac software was awful. Mm-hmm. It made my Mac crash continually and nothing makes Macs crash anymore. So I, I switched over to PC for that part of my creativity. But blame it on Donald Duck. There you go. That's so good. Was there a specific point? I really like this story. Was there a specific point where you recognized this is the medium that I want to work in? Or at least predominantly. You've done so much, but the embroidery seems to be something that you come back to, right, again and again. I do. I mean, I'm, I'm a typical, on some level, 1950s chick. I mean, we were all taught to embroider. And it's fun. It's, it's just fun. And so that part of fiber has always been a little bit of my downtime and hobby time. I was a spinner because it was relaxing, right? But when it really took flight was when I was on vacation. Most years I, I rent a cabin for two weeks because I almost always have a dog. And you can't take dogs to residencies. And I'm a single woman. And you don't really want to put your dog in a kennel for two weeks or a month. So, plus that's really expensive, but it's not good for the dog. So, so I, I set up my own residency by going to this cabin every year where the landlord loves me, loves to see what I'm doing. And one year when I was there, I set up the idea for myself that all I really wanted to do was work on color with the embroider machine. What are the ways that I can manipulate color? And that's when I started working with gradients. And I also started pressing more toward back into three dimensions. So I started making little boxes and things because I take a small machine with me. And I was turning one of the boxes inside out and I'd made it too tight. And it was really, really hard to turn inside out. And it was all crumply. It, it looked like paint, old paint that's done curves and squiggles. And it was unbelievably beautiful. And I started doing some folding forms where I digitized like triangles and made sure there were little spaces between the triangles so I could fold them and iron them because I work on polyester felt and you can put in a permanent fold really easily. Even, even with a crappy little travel iron, you can do that. And I took them all out on the pebble beach and I photographed them from different angles. And it was like, okay, now I know. Because even the things that were stitched out like a solid blue, when you bent them, they still shifted in color. It was just amazing. And that was right about the time I had done some study on how the thread was made. I'm a spinner. I know how to make thread. But I learned through a series of, I don't know, I think it was YouTube videos or possibly even DVDs from, I think, the Superior Thread Company about how these 
particular threads were made and that they are trilobal and they are extruded and and because of that they have the characteristic of a rough triangle and it was like well explode my brain of course that's why all of this is happening because it was just incredible and from then on it was all about the gradients the folds and how color shifts and how light bounces off and then the the shapes and the forms began to suggest meaning that's how it happened and it's been what maybe eight years or so wow and and the goal now is is bringing in more of the organic with it because my drawing is unbelievably organic so and and no matter how you work with this in this digital platform it's not meant to replicate the work of the hand it is mechanical so how do you soften that how do you seamlessly combine that with wood how do you seamlessly combine that with with destructive elements sometimes i shred the embroideries there are ways to do that and so that's kind of my goal now is to find that combination so that the two sides of my personality as an artist are are more joined yeah it's so interesting that you have the juxtaposition of so many tangible elements and physical things with technology and digital and a very simple process in some other ways yeah so i'm curious to take a little bit of a left turn here sure Uh, i want to get into how you this category of sharing your work you know you have a long history in your career a lot of experience and i'm curious for you was there a specific like moment when the growth in your art took off or was it more of a gradual flow of sharing your work and just any tips or thoughts on how to think through growth and sharing your work and dealing with rejection and all these different oh, things that come along with being an artist, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, it was gradual. When I graduated from college, it was during the Vietnam War and everything seemed pretty pointless, which is a, a kind of a way a lot of us feel now. So I shifted my focus to the ceramics part of my training. And it was Ann Arbor. We had the Ann Arbor Art Fair. So I just started making every day, but porcelain work. So it the idea again was to slow down, to, to be aware of your surroundings. What does your food like on, look like on this plate? Does it taste better on this plate? What is it like to share your meal? on all handmade goods, which is all I eat off of now. And so it, it shares a little bit of a foundation with what I still do. But I started out in art festivals, and it was very direct. Mm-hmm. Thrilled to have any sale at all initially, and then you begin to do the quantifying of, you know, am I actually making any money here? And it's the art festivals are very seductive that way because the costs are way higher than you realize, but but it is a a cash flow that's you're holding on to that cash, um, and you're holding on and finally you know after a couple of years to the credit card slips right, 
and then it's all in square, so it's all digital. But it's it's a real tangible thing. But my work continued to develop and to change, and pretty soon it was becoming far more conceptual, far more sculptural, and I realized the art festival wasn't the place that it needed to be anymore. And so that was a crisis. Of course it was. And I had to start figuring out what made some sense. So I reduced the art festivals and I began to look for different places little by little where the these new works belonged. And I started applying for shows in galleries. And, mm. and there were calls for art, but they were all... That you could find them online and in publications, but online wasn't very big yet. I was online because I'm, I'm geeky that way. But it was a matter of you had to take slides. You had to, you know, label the slides, put them in little slide holders, send them out with self-addressed stamped envelopes and handwritten applications. But I started getting into shows. And so that was really cool. And meanwhile, because I'm a lifelong learner and I love materials, I somehow start, started getting interested in handmade paper. It was a hobby, right? Be careful of your hobbies. <laughs> they might take over. The handmade paper led me back to drawing and, and led me seamlessly into artist books because I always looked on artwork as communication and what I was trying to communicate at that time needed the assistance of words and interaction and the clay wasn't the right place anymore. When I finally mastered it, it was like, that's great, but we're not the right medium for you. And so I started studying books and artist books and I am a writer to go along with all of that, but I write open-ended so that people provide their content to the story because that's what makes a good reader. That's how people own a short story is when they can see themselves in it. That's how people own poetry is when they interpret it for their means. I might be talking about something else, but it might mean something different to them, but then they own it. And whether they buy it or not, that's how people own the content. And that was rich and wonderful and heavily collected. And I was still doing artist books, exhibiting my own and other people's artist books, and and beginning to make forays into installation art in order to communicate even more deeply in terms of experience. Because artist books are performative, and I love that aspect of them. They, in order to get content on a book, you got to open it. So <laughs> you have to interact with it. And my artist books always had at least some text, but they also had form and sometimes fold out. Sometimes they weren't even book shaped, but they had a, the characteristic of a book and more so. So how they were, the shape they were, the shape of the pages, the colors, the binding, everything was part of the communication and, the t and how they felt and sometimes how they smelled. And so that performative aspect 
kind of led me into installation art also because mm -hmm. it takes that performance farther. It takes the interaction farther. I could work with sound. I could work with scent. I could work with light. And so I did that. And that was all back in Michigan. And I moved here to Minneapolis about 20 years ago. And Minneapolis is a book art center. And I opened a gallery here. I'd been working as a gallerist in East Lansing also with friends a couple of times. And when I opened the gallery, I continued showing um, narrative artwork a lot. That was kind of the focus of the gallery. People had a point of view, right? I wanted a point of view. And I wanted to show the work that maybe didn't belong over Joe Blow's couch, but maybe Joe Blow would come in and see it and think. Because even art that doesn't work in somebody's home decoration still mm -hmm. needs to be seen. It is one of the functions of art. And it still has a public. And so I made sure that the public saw it. But paradoxically, my own work, all of a sudden, words left mm -hmm. the room for the most part. They just kind of walked mm -hmm. right out the door. And pretty soon, I was only making artist books a few times a year, and my focus was almost entirely on experience. And then I went to the state fair, God help me, and saw that Donald Duck. <laughs> and, and I'm still working sculpturally, occasionally installation-wide, but not as much. So it's, it's kind of seamless. So, so follow your nose. Mm -hmm. Look at your artwork. So this is the advice part, okay? Art festival work is, is kind of the most approachable art. The most people will buy that work that they recognize it. It's the lighthouses. It can be an abstracted lighthouse, but as long as they get that sense of the lighthouse in the painting or or the seagulls, or the birds, or the landscape. It's the things that they that make them feel good in almost any home environment. The, the pottery that you're going to eat out of, mix your muffins in, people will buy that at an art, art festival. Pet portraits, portraits of your children, or things that make them laugh. Um, the things that are, and it does, and this is not a denigration. These are superb things. They just aren't gallery things. That's all. Sure, sure. Yeah, and then when when the work somehow doesn't fit there, and it needs a different public, it needs somebody who isn't coming to the art festivals. Like it might be corporate, it might be art consultant work. Then you need to find new places. And you start looking. So you let your experiences tell you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you were a failure. It means you didn't fit. You weren't showing mm -hmm. where you fit. And you're not a failure if you have a job. Almost all artists have a job. Even some of the ones in the Venice Biennale have jobs. A lot of them do, because they're doing challenging work, a lot of which doesn't really get bought. 
but they're famous. So what? You know, they get paid to participate in the Biennales, but not enough to make a living. So they have jobs. That's okay. It frees you up to do the work you really need to do. And if the work you really need to do is a bunch of landscapes for art festivals, good on you. Yeah. Do what's right for you. And then rejection. <laughs> it's just part of the process. Before applications to you know, art festivals, galleries, um, museums and things all went online. I had gotten to the point where I had about a 50% success rate, and it was pretty predictable. I knew that I would get into at least 50% of the shows or opportunities that I applied to. But when things opened up, and it became more democratic as well as more competitive, because let's face it, if you are at ease with a computer, it's way easier to send applications, transcripts, all kinds of things online, obviously it is. So mm -hmm. far more people are in the mix now. And I am utterly pleased with a 10 to 15% 10 to 15% success rate. And one of the ways to parse it is, you know, you set your budget because all of these things cost money. The museum mm -hmm. applications are usually free but they take so much more time, so technically that's not free. But be that as it may, it doesn't cost cash. Let's put it that way. You're not, sure. not doing an outlay of cash. But for those you have to outlay cash, you just have to set your budget, whatever works for you, and then do a whole lot of them, as many as you can for your budget. Because what that does for you is it teaches you about where you belong and it also begins to inoculate you against disappointment because you're just mm -hmm. there's like ten of them, and so you know after right. five rejections come in, number six usually says yes. So you just like bake that into your planning. Yeah, if you put all your eggs in one basket, oh, I did an application. Now I have to wait. Mm, it's going to feel terrible mm. when that comes in. So that's so that's so good. Yeah, yeah, it's the it's that old fashioned cliche of don't put all your eggs in one basket. So you know, good. set up a bunch of baskets. So do you? I want to. I know we need to wrap here in a few minutes, but I want to talk for just a second about how you've sustained throughout this career and how do you deal with burnout or writer's block and how do you push through those things? Because it feels like you're just prolific and how much you, yeah. you're very productive and you've I done am. so many different things but and it seems like you also create out of a passion and joy but I i'm do. curious when you do hit that writer's block how do you get out of that yeah i don't have much of that but w i mean very little frankly i really hate being between projects it's a very mm. uncomfortable space for me the main ones really have to do with health challenges. When I was in my 40s, I think, um, I had to have extremely major back surgery that took a year to recover from. Man, it was hard to get back in the studio from that. But I did do, I set up ways to do creative things that I could do, like writing 
uh, and reading and studying. And I'm in another one of those now. And because I've had two years of difficulty with a broken leg, but before that, that same leg had a, a, a serious injury also that had nothing to do with the broken leg. Both of them were random and it's really hard to work full bore. So Mm -hmm. one of the things I've learned to do is to go back to things I have done before. And, and it might be the colorways. It might be the forms, but to work on iterations and not worry about it being a masterpiece, just to keep moving forward. And I have to move more slowly because of a broken leg. You have to. But I, the way I did it with a broken leg, because I was in a wheelchair for eight weeks, geez, I, I went back to book arts, though. I wound up doing accordion books. What can I do from a wheelchair so that I don't feel like I'm going to explode? I can draw long strips. Mm-hmm. And I, I made little accordions. And about a week ago, maybe two, I was strong enough to stand up and make the covers. So I accumulated, you know, probably 20 or 30 drawings that some were bad, some were good, you know, most were just for me, and six artist books. So that's how I managed it. Because I am not married to only one way of being creative. That's a beautiful place to start landing the plane. I think I'm curious, where can people go to learn more about you? And what's one thing that our listeners could do to help you? Yeah, they need to go probably first. I guess I'll say my website. You know, my managers want me to say the website. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm always working on the website. It's SusanHenselProjects.com. All of my work is there from the last 20 years anyways, I think. And maybe a little less. Um, And if you go to my Instagram account, you see the work in process. I use it. I use my Instagram account to announce shows, yes, definitely, and to promote shows, definitely. But I also show works in process there. And that is Susan underscore Hensel underscore multimedia underscore artist. I should have made a shorter handle, but once you make your handle, you got it. And that is a much more fluid space to see what I'm doing and what I'm involved with. And certainly just look me up. There's another Susan Hensel in St. Louis, Missouri, outside of St. Louis, who is also an artist, but she does portraits. So you'll know that's not me. (laughs) But I once, when she either bought or sold a vehicle, her title was sent to me. And so I had to look her up and say, hi, Mm -hmm. I got the title to your vehicle. So <laughs> that's amazing. I know it was really wild, but uh, but yeah, I'm all over the place. I'm over in Frankfurt, Germany right now, and golly, there's another place. I just had work in Korea, I've got work in Springfield, Illinois, right now, and I'm online all over the place. I run a gallery on Artsy, so I'm there, and 
sometimes in other galleries on Artsy, artsy.net. And I actually recommend that all artists look at artsy.net. There's a great research tool. They have good articles anyways, but also let's suppose you're just curious about what other watercolorists are doing. Go to artsy.net and you'll see big name and small name galleries and you can you can type in watercolor. Let's see what the watercolors are doing and what galleries are carrying them. So mm -hmm. you begin to identify work that your work would show with well and try to figure out ways to either get to know that artist personally or get to know the gallery better and see if you can wiggle your way in, even though they all almost all say that they don't look at portfolios. Obviously, they do. They just do it on their terms. <laughs> that's a great that's a great tip to go and look for some inspiration and find that kind of back door. I love that. Yeah, find the back doors, but it's also inspiration too. What are other people doing? And the other one that I like really a lot is Artnet News. And I even subscribe to the Artnet News Pro because they go deep. They go deep. Awesome. Well, we'll include all of these links in the show notes for this episode so people can see them. Well, Susan, this has been really inspiring. Many more questions we could go into. Maybe we'll have you on again someday, but thank you so much for yeah, taking the time. Yeah, have me back another awesome. time if you, if you choose. I've got opinions about a lot of things, as long as it's art-based. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Definitely. Well, thanks so much. Hey, thanks for listening to The Craft with Carter and Colby, where we share what we're learning about the creative process. If you're a writer, music producer, marketer, filmmaker, photographer, or you just love creativity, then this show is for you. Our cover art was designed by Elizabeth Newell. You can learn more about her work at elizabethnewelldesign.com. That's Elizabeth, N-E-W-E-L-L, design.com. And you can follow her on Instagram at elizabethisadesigner. If you like the show, there's three things you can do to help us out. First, subscribe so you learn when we post new episodes. Second, send the link to one of your friends who you think would enjoy the show. Uh, really, word of mouth is going to be the, the number one way we grow the show in any way. And three, if you have a topic you want us to cover or feedback about how we can improve the show or comments on what we've said, you can respond to heycraftpodcast at gmail.com, H-E-Y-C-R-A-F-T podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.